Chuck's not here, man. I said Chuck's not here, man! This is hell. Live from Plague Country, population you. This is hell, and I'm not Chuck, nor do I wish I was. Chuck came down with the Rona um, last week, and uh, he will, in all likelihood, still be out until uh, next week. Maybe we'll be, we'll be back with a new, all new Chuck on all new Patreon this Thursday. That's not we're not entirely sure about that yet. So uh, hang tight. Uh, our beloved producer, Chuck Mertz, will eventually return in all his old glory after he has um, shaken off uh, his COVID infection, um, which is uh, a work in progress. So, uh, yeah, as I said, hang tight. Uh, I'm producer Sebastian. Uh, welcome to This Is Hell, or rather, welcome to uh, This Is Limbo, because, well, um, in uh, absence of uh, our beloved host, um, us producers are taking over... Again, uh, for another week, um, playing, well, um, basically whatever we want, because, <laughs> as it is, uh, you know, cats, gone, mice, dancing on the table, and so on and so forth. Um, anyway, here in Hell, we like asking questions. Like the question from Hell, which last week was, what do you hate most about this as Hell? What do you hate most about this as hell? That was last week's question, not this week's question. But because there were no shows last week, um, well, we did not really talk about this question at all on air. Um, so, uh, since we are all about due diligence here at This Is Hell, I will now announce uh, the glorious winner of um, last week's question from hell. Uh, and that was Kelly H's answer on Facebook. What does she hate most about this as hell? She said that it is not virtuous enough to just listen to it and not do anything. And yeah, that is, uh, that is sadly very true. Listening to political podcasts, my dear friends, is not praxis. Um, what is praxis? I don't know. I'm not gonna talk about that on air. I don't want to get deported. Um... Anyway, Kelly, get in touch with us so that we can um, uh, send you whatever piece of merch that you want to ma uh, from our merch catalog to make your life better with. Um, and if you, too, dear listener, want a better life made possible by our merchandise, uh, you can go to thisishell.com, click on support, and buy some. Or, or... Uh, you can send us your answer to this week's question from hell via email to this is hell radio at gmail.com to yours truly at seb that's s-e-b at this is hell.com or to uh, our beloved host chuck chuck at this is hell.com you can also send chuck your get well soon messages good vibes and so on and so forth to this email address chuck at this is hell.com um, you can also supply your answer to this week's question from hell to our Facebook, to our Twitter, at This Is Hell Radio. Um, yeah. And also, uh, 
you know, check uh, check our Facebook and Twitter for how to join our Discord server. Uh, we have a Discord server. There's a few people on there now. Um, not not a lot happening yet. We're still trying to reach critical mass, so we have to advertise the existence of the Discord server a little a little more in the coming uh, weeks. Oh, and uh, this week's question from Hell is, what are you thankful for this year? And then also, <laughs> because we did a little snafu, um, we have a second question from Hell, and that is, uh, what are people? What should people thank you for this year? So whichever, uh, uh, which whichever one of those you wish to answer, just answer both of them. Um, as per usual, our favorite answer to any of them really will win a piece of merchandise of your choice. The trucker hat, the face covering, the face mask, the winter beanie, the flash drive with the This Is Hell interview archive, etc., etc. You know the drill. Go to thisishell.com and click on support to see your options. Or, better yet for us, just buy merch, right? Just go ahead, open your wallet, take out your credit card, click on anything and everything in there, put it in your cart, click checkout, Enter your credit card information and give us your money. Um, yeah, or even better yet, support us by becoming a Patreon member while you're at it. I mean, what's your excuse not to? We're cheaper than a blue check mark on, the, <laughs> on Twitter. Oh my god. Oh, what a shit show. And it's okay, I said sheet show. It's a sheet show, as in like we're demonstrating bed sheets, dear radio sensors. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, and so far, you know, like, we're, we at This Is Hell, This Is Hell is so far not the pet project of, of a billionaire. Um, but if you are a billionaire and you want to make us your pet project, please let us know. If you have to waste your money, at least waste it on something meaning, meaningful. And as usual, we are dumb enough to be alive, brash enough to be goofy, high in our own supply enough to think that we can be part of your hangover um you know what time is it now it is time for the weekly hangover cure delivered to me by carrier pigeon from uh, chuck's sick bed so this week's hangover cure is a peruvian soup to raise the dead really chuck well, we, we are doing necromancy now anyway uh last week connecticut insider ran in the story cora cora in west hartford uh, Perfect's family spun Peruvian recipes. In the article, writer James Griven describes a family-owned James Beard Award-winning Peruvian restaurant that's been around since 2011. Cora Cora resides in an old McDonald's, <laughs> which still retains the chain's trademark floor and drive-thru. A drive-thru that functions. Yes, you can get award-winning Peruvian cuisine from an old McDonald's drive-thru in West Hartford, Connecticut. One of the dishes on the menu is Parihuela Levante Muertas, a soup to raise the dead. Family member, family member Macarena Lunena explains, In Peru, when you have too much to drink and you wake up in the morning and you feel like dying, you have uh, Parihuela. Dear Spanish speakers, please correct me if I'm getting this wrong. It's it's none of the languages that I really speak, but anyway. Uh, you have a parihuela to get you up again. Connecticut Today writer Given reports, a Peruvian hangover cure then made with a reef's worth of fish, scallops, black tiger shrimp, octopus, and mussels, flavored and reddened with ahipanca, 
I, I don't know how you pronounce that. A.G. Panka? The given concludes, As the ghost of many a drink has left a fur boot in my mouth to mark its passage, I have a deep personal interest in this claim. Expect future updates. Well, we can't wait, so that makes this hangover cure Peruvian parihuela levante muertos a soup to raise the dead. Um... Yeah, that, that's that's this week's uh, this week's hangover cure. What's new with me? Well, it's November, and I hate November. It's the worst month of the year. Sorry, Scorpios. Normal November's already stink. This one, it's making a goddamn effort to stink. First, my uncle, who was technically a distant cousin, died, um, which made everyone in my family sad. Now, Chloe's favorite uncle, who was actually her uncle also died, and uh, that made everyone in my wife's family sad. And then everyone around me, Chuck, and another one of my bosses at my other job, and what feels like every other person I'm friends with on Facebook got COVID. I, so far, have not, and I would really like to stay that way. Um, but all of that makes me just want to stay at home and hibernate like a bear. Too much death, too much disease, awful weather here in Chicago. Well, at least when I wrote this, today is actually kind of nice and sunny. But still, it is cold and windy and ugh, the sun sets way too early. I wish I had gotten stranded on Hawaii. Give me more sunlight year-round and no snow. And usually I would argue that the snow is necessary because the places on Earth where there's no snow in winter and no real winter at that usually have awful bugs. But Hawaii does not, because it's so far away from everything. It never, there never were a lot of, never, there never was much of a chance for awful bugs to develop. So, um, yeah, it's, it does, it, it, it does have all the good things and none of the bad things. So it really is the ideal place. Uh, and in, in some ways, anyway. <clears throat> Let's not think about the Red Hill fuel tank lake and all that nonsense. Um, if you know, then you know. Anyway, speaking of ideal places, Qatar. Ever heard of Qatar? <laughs> it's quite the place. It is not part of the United Arabic Emirates. However, it is an Arabic Emirate. Just not united. Qatar is frequently one of the richest countries on Earth due to its massive natural gas and oil reserves. And it helps that Qatari citizens also just make up a minority of people who actually live in the country. It's like 25% maybe. And most of the labor in Qatar is actually done by often essentially rightless migrant workers from abroad. Something like 85, 80, 86, 87, up to 90% estimated of all labor in Qatar is actually from abroad. Because the Qatari... I mean, am I calling the Qatari lazy? I mean, probably not. You probably work a lot to get all that oil money, but like, it's mostly oil money. Um, and well, those foreign workers don't muddle up the perfect GDP scores. And this year, Qatar is host to the FIFA Soccer World Cup Championship, which was essentially given to the Emirate due to massive corrupt uh, uh, lobbying campaign to FIFA. Um, it's actually been quite the, well, another sheet show. Um, again, it's okay if I say it, I'm talking about sheets. Bed sheets. It's a show of sheets. And, okay, no, it's not racist. I'm not talking about the. the I'm not. I'm not describing the Qatari fashion that way. That's. That's that. That was you. I was just talking about. Ah, forget it. Bring out the lasers. Um, 
Anyway, so the Qataris gave the FIFA officials a lot of money to make this whole thing happen. If you're not aware of this, I mean, most Americans are not now just like tangentially aware of that soccer is a thing that a lot of the world participates in. Um, and uh, yeah, well, so the, the and, and it's been <laughs> quite the rolling scandal basically ever since 2010 when uh, the FIFA officials uh, gave Qatar the world championship this year. Because um, this Qatar is a desert country, right? It's very small. It's all desert, and it's really a great place for a giant sporting event. Um, I mean, actually, no, it's it's not. It's it's really not. So it's actually so great that FIFA wisely folded and held the championship in winter, rather than uh, as is tradition in the summer months. You know, it's because. So, soccer the soccer world championships are usually in the summer because well in the summer in the northern hemisphere and the winter in the southern hemisphere but like anyway like it's usually it's usually in the summer months in July in June July or and, and, and so on and so forth um, because at that time during the year it's summer break for soccer clubs and regional leagues. So, uh, like, UEFA and, and, and so on and so forth. So, uh, and, 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 like, the Bundesliga or the Premier League. They're, all these leagues are on pause during those months. Uh, but since the FIFA bosses decided to have the championship in a desert country, they eventually came to the conclusion that it would probably be better for the health of the players and also the fans to not have them run around for two times 45 minutes in, in summer desert heat. Um, so, giving this tiny country the World Cup is quite baffling, because there was not, not much of a soccer tradition in Qatar. Um, also, there's no infrastructure there, so everything had to be built from scratch. Uh, for which they used a lot of, like, what is basically slave labor, um, and just, uh, yeah, a lot of people died because they were just basically worked to death. Um, and then also there's the corruption, but then again, this is the FIFA where corruption is just basically out in the open, and it's just a, yeah, what are you going to do about it kind of attitude. Um, but, and then there's, you know, it's, it's just one one uh, weird thing after the other, and then it's also just how emblematic it is that you have this coterie of extremely wealthy people who buy such a, you know, a thing that brings a lot of people joy and just basically running into, into the ground by having it in a country that's not really equipped for this in any real way. Um, and then there's the fact all that all this money comes from, entirely, from fossil fuels. So, uh, yeah, if uh, that is not an, an, a proof positive that this is indeed hell, then I don't know what is. And so... I went and chose this 2015 interview with uh, political economist Patrick Bond on FIFA's corruption. Because it seemed timely to remind everyone what a gigantic sheet show that organization is. Probably worse than the International Olympic Committee. Which is also awful for similar reasons because, you know, like the giant sports organizations, they're all pretty hellish, pretty bad. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, so here is, here is, uh, Chuck talking to Patrick Bond, uh, back in, uh, back in 2015. This is hell. 
the FIFA scandal story is about a lot more than soccer. It's about global corruption. It's about the power of the elites. It's about the sleaziest way in which poverty and conflict are exported around the globe. In other words, it is about soccer. With a perspective live from Durban, South Africa, political economist Patrick Bond wrote the Telesur article, FIFA Fraud, Africa's Corruption and Elite uh, Silence, about the scandal rocking global soccer. Good evening in Durban, South Africa, Patrick. Great to have you back on This Is Hell. It's great to be back with you, Chuck. It's correct. It's about uh, 7 o'clock, but uh, nice to be with you. Hey, before we start this conversation, I have to share something with you. Our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, apparently is a colleague of yours, Brian Mir. Yes, Brian does just terrific work. You know, uh, the Brazilian uh, progressive uh, community is so full of contradictions, and I think Brian cuts a very, very good uh, balance. And when he was doing his reporting on the the World Cup, it felt just like South Africa four years later, and uh, he has a lot of nuance on that, especially the way the cities had to adapt and adjust, and uh, ordinary people resisted. So I think he, he gave you some very good material. For those who don't know, seven top officials of soccer's international governing group, FIFA, including two vice presidents, uh, were arrested last week. They were among 14 charged in a 47-charge U.S. indictment, which alleges five corporate executives and nine FIFA officials in total accepted bribes and kickbacks estimated at more than $150 million over a 24-year period. Patrick Bond is a political economist based at the University of KwaZulu-Natal School of Development Studies in Durban, where he directs the Center for Civil Society, and he is the co-author with John S. Saul of the 2014 book, South Africa, the Present as History. You write, the last week has provided extraordinary examples of how corruption erodes the resources and morals of an entire continent, Africa, in part because villains in South Africa made alliances with wicked brothers in Switzerland, Latin America, the Caribbean, and especially the United States. We now know more about offshore centers of both reactionary finance and corporate uh, cor- and corrupt corporate soccer. It's long overdue. They are exposed to a spotlight, even those pointing that light, want to leave certain features in the shadows. You say here, and especially the United States, the way that this story is being packaged here in the United States is that this has nothing to do with the United States. And the reason that the U.S. Department of Justice went after soccer is because is kind of hypocritical. Why not be focusing on what's happening here in our own National Football League, in the football, in uh, American football? Why not be focusing on that league? So how is this story about especially the United States when here in the U.S. we're saying it's about everybody else but us? Well, it's partly because there's one um, U.S. soccer official, Chuck Blazer, who is spilling the beans. He's been uh, mailed even a couple of years ago for um, similar crimes, and the, the one that I'm most interested in, and, and South Africa is fascinated by, is that we got our World Cup in 2010 through by bribing Chuck Blazer and his, especially his colleague Jack Warner. That was $10 million. Chuck Blazer took a million of it, or nearly a million. Uh, he, he, he was pushing for a million, and because he didn't quite get it, this sort of dragged on, and, and it meant uh, uh, that Chuck, that uh, Jack Warner, who's from Trinidad and has run the Caribbean side of the Caribbean North American. League and his mate Chuck Blazer, you know, was sort of the U.S. ally, and I got between them lots of face time with Nelson Mandela as one of what we thought was the the core sort of uh, inducement to make South Africa the, the first African host back in uh, 2010. This was go uh, all the way back, Chuck, to 2004, and in May uh, South Africa was running against um, uh, Morocco, who'd offered 
the same large uh, $1 million bribe. And um, all this money ends up going through U.S. banks, which is the technical explanation of why the FBI and Loris Lynch from Justice got involved. And, of course, they've got exceptionally powerful surveillance tools. Ed Snowden's given us all the information about, you know, how they can, uh, uh, you know, assess all the telephone conversations and emails they want. And after 911, they started for the first time really going after these foreign bank accounts of, uh, at that point, uh, hardcore Islamic uh, fundamentalists. And now they can go right into the Swiss banks, which really makes Switzerland much less attractive for your average uh, dictator. And that is making it all quite a uh, an unveiling, not just about corruption amongst African elites trying to get this World Cup, putting forward Nelson Mandela, right, our, our great icon of probity and honesty and integrity, but in fact behind the scenes slipping $10 million. Oh, and by the way, disguising it um, in a clever way, because our, our uh, leaders here have many of them trained in Moscow, right? So they sort of know how to talk left while they walk right. And as a result, they have dressed that $10 million bribe up as a development investment from South Africa in the African diaspora. Of course, they didn't give the same bribe to the African uh, Soccer Federation, who'd all supported Morocco because of other deals that were done, probably other bits of corruption. So I think it's great that both the... Um, major uh, corrupt banking centers, New York City and Zurich, are also implicated, even though it looks like it's kind of sleazy soccer officials like uh, Chuck Blazer from Manhattan, who's now suffering, a, I think, a terminal case of colon cancer and is probably ready to just spill the beans. Who knows what he's, he's doing with his negotiations? And, of course, Seth Blatter, so far unscathed. He was not one of the seven arrested last week, but he's going down. He uh, basically resigned a few days ago after having won last Friday his re-election. So, Patrick, is is the upside then of the war on terror, is the upside transparency in the Swiss banking system that leads us to finding corruption like what took place with FIFA? Well, it's interesting you ask that because that's the focus of the other big story of the last couple of weeks, which is that President Thabo Mbeki, who was Mandela's successor from 1999 to 2008, he was, he was evicted in a palace coup, and the current president uh, shortly thereafter came in, Jacob Zuma. But what Mbeki's been up to um, is investigating precisely that outflow of, um, they call it illicit um, financial flows, IFS. And these uh, illicit financial flows, uh, according to Mbeki, are costing Africa $50 billion a year. And of course, a good chunk goes into Switzerland. I mean, the most notorious were probably Nigeria's uh, dictators and army uh, elites who, who put a lot of money there and also into London. And some of that was found out. And yes, I think after 911, um, there was an ideology that emerged. And it wasn't just really the search for, um, for Islamic uh, fundamentalism and, and the financial flows of finance, you know, the, the, the terror attack. But there was something more profound. George Soros came to prominence. Remember, uh, in the early 2000s, he'd already been a, a very important figure, but his open society network. And they came with a theory, Chuck. The theory is kind of interesting. If you've got a harsh spotlight, a bright light, and you shine it on corruption, uh, you, you seek transparency with that searchlight, you'll disinfect the corruption. So it's a very um, elite, um, liberal way of thinking about change, right? That if you simply unveil the chain, the, the corruption, you can you can uh, basically dissolve it and, and, and end it. And that theory has uh, not worked very well. I mean, there's right. plenty of 
uh, little games of playing uh, corporate social responsibility and uh, transparency. We have something you might know called the Kimberly Process. Maybe you saw the film Blood Diamond, right. which was about how that how that Kimberly Process came about after the civil wars in West Africa. But that Kimberly Process, aiming at particularly De Beers uh, and some of the other really sleazy diamond buyers, De Beers is so bad that the leaders of that company, started by Cecil Rhodes uh, over 120 years ago, the leaders of that company, the Oppenheimer family, weren't even allowed to come to the United States because of their um, monopoly on diamonds. But it hasn't worked, and even Robert Mugabe, the dictator in Zimbabwe, found a way to get the diamonds out uh, through Israel uh, over the past four or five years in the billions of dollars with um, the Kimberley process giving thumbs up. So these are the sorts of limitations, and the only solution really is get rid of these guys, you know, and, and delegitimize them. And that's what's so delightful about what's happening at FIFA, because uh, the whole world is known. I mean, you know, your, your comedian there, John Oliver, has a fantastic little sketch about eight or ten minutes uh, done last year about uh, about Sepp Blatter. I'm sure your, your listeners can check that out. But he is just so notorious, and I could go on and on about what he did to us in 2010 at the World Cup. And that, to me, is the real deep corruption that unfortunately Loretta Lynch doesn't want to get anywhere near. But one last point, Loretta Lynch, I don't trust. I mean, I don't know about uh, how, how much you have followed her work um, in Brooklyn when she was a prosecutor. What did she do to HSBC? This is a very, very dirty bank, one of the worst. And she let their uh, criminal uh, leadership off with just a fine, which, of course, they passed to their customers. Uh, no criminal prosecution in the, in the sort of Obama style. So it's an interesting problem, right? What do you do with corruption? Do you just shine a bright light? Or do we try to delegitimize these elites, including Thabo Mbeki, who liberalized finance the whole time he was president and now is uh, purportedly worried about the illicit financial flows? It turns out he's had his fingerprints on that $10 million bribe back in 2004 when he was president as well. As did the current South African president, Jacob Zuma, as well, correct? Well, yes. He was uh, at that time a deputy president, and, um, and then in 2010 he'd become the president, so he hosted Blatter and it all manner of deals. I mean, the big scandal this week for Jacob Zuma was that he was allowed um, to basically keep his um, rural mansion without having to pay uh, back the state subsidies. Now, that, this is quite an important story in our part of the world because um, your rural mansions for your African dictators are kind of a stereotype. It's a bit of a, it's a bit of a sort of um, uh, joke. And in fact, Nelson Mandela didn't build a mansion. He built a very ordinary little house in his uh, place where he's ultimately been buried in the trans sky. And uh, Thabo Mbeki didn't have any rural mansion. He's got a sort of expensive house in Johannesburg. But for Jacob Zuma, a traditionalist from where I'm speaking, KwaZulu, the Zulu people really look up to um, these sort of patriarchal leaders and have given thumbs up to Jacob Zuma using about $20 million of state funds to do things like put in a big swimming pool and a coop, uh, a coop for his chickens and a what's called a crawl, a sort of um, an area for the for the cows and an amphitheater. And they're all added up in some uh, forms of, obviously, construction-related corruption to $20 million. And the official uh, the public protector, sort of ombuds for the, for the country, came down very hard on him late last year. And her name's Tuli Madansela. She's sort of the corruption buster of the country. And this was the, uh, the subject of enormous political interest. There's a sort of political meme going on here called um, Pay Back the Money, which the left-wing party in the parliament, the economic freedom fighters, has been using to put a lot of pressure on Zuma. Well, just this last week, then the police minister made his adjudication of 
the security costs and how much Zuma would have to pay. And he said, don't worry, don't pay anything. So they basically left this big um, sort of uh, hanging uh, delegitimization of Zuma right out there for months to come. And we have another election at the municipal level next March, April. And I'm pretty sure this is one of those dominating themes that this is a profoundly corruption-ridden government right from the top where a 20 million rural uh, palace uh, improvement that can't be justified, swimming pools and things for security, um, now are going to continue to be the subject of a lot of jokes uh, in, this, in this country and delegitimizing a, a, an African National Congress once led by Mandela that's degenerated quite profoundly as we've seen with this $10 million bribe just to get the World Cup. You mentioned the newly named Attorney General here in the U.S., Loretta Lynch, and how when she was at the Department of Justice, she only fined, she was only interested in fines and not arrests of bankers who were involved in the financial collapse of 2008 or any of the uh, mortgage fraud uh, cases that we have seen in the past. What explains to you then Loretta Lynch making arrests when it comes to FIFA? Why would she be arresting people for corruption in FIFA, but only fining people for corruption within the financial system? It's such an interesting question. I hope you and your listeners will will chime in and educate us. We have the impression, certainly Seth Blatter himself and Vladimir Putin have said, this is obviously a hit by Loretta Lynch and Obama backing her against FIFA to punish Putin and also Qatar. The 2022 World Cup will be held in Doha, uh, the capital of Qatar, and, and it's an oil-rich, usually pro-Western, reliable, um, corrupt shakedom, and um, it's very, very small, and most of the people living there are actually imported workers, and they're treated like slaves, and uh, several hundred have been killed, and actually uh, the, the accidents associated with building these World Cup stadia. But the U.S. also bid for the 2022 um, World Cup, and also Britain bid for the 2018 World Cup. So how did they go, these World Cups, to Russia and to Qatar? Well, Loretta Lynch is probably going to try and get Sepp Blatter arrested for bribery on those two. So this story is going to keep unfolding. And the story from Blatter and from Putin and many third world people, including South Africa's foreign minister, uh, and, uh, sorry, fine, uh, sports ministers, this is just what they would say is imperialism. This is the U.S., something down its fist on soccer, pretending it's interested in a cleaner uh, administration, but really doing some geopolitical revenge. Now, there may be something to that. I mean, I would guess, as Dave Zirin put it, that had uh, the United States won for 2022, uh, president of FIFA, Sepp Blatter, would be president for life. You know, he's 79 now, and he just elected another five years on Friday uh, a week ago, but then he's resigned uh, on Tuesday in, in a sort of surprise move. But I think the pressure that he's been feeling and the FBI really coming down on him, probably looking at every email and uh, listening to every phone conversation he's made, they must have a lot of dirt on him. And it's probably quite easy to, to make the case, and I'm surprised they didn't do it before his re-election, that he really has to retire and do something um, to, uh, to to hand over that power. His agenda is to stay in power as, as long as he can, at least another six months. They won't have another election to, to replace him, probably, he said, between December this year and, and March next year. So his agenda, no doubt, is just to keep himself safe and to prepare the ground for some pro-blatter regime that, that replaces him and to keep his exceptionally well-oiled patronage system with all these various uh, soccer federations around the world in his support. I mean, of 203 members, right, a huge number of 
of countries, nearly all of them in the world are members, uh, he got 133 votes. So Europe's against him, and they may want to, they were even talking about setting up an alternative world uh, cup uh, process, an alternative soccer system. So the stakes are high, and it wouldn't be surprising if those stakes included the kind of pressure on Putin that we've seen with sanctions of various other sorts, financial, um, and the pressure, of course, to toss Putin out of the G8, now it's the G7, and the pressures on uh, Qatar to, uh, again, uh, fess up, because obviously some bribery. You know, Chuck, you guys don't play soccer that much in the US, I'm sure it's a, it's a coming game, but to try and play soccer, the world's beloved game, in 50 degree centigrade heat, what is that in Fahrenheit? Uh, 130, right? I don't know. It's like unbelievable. In the summer in Qatar is, is, is impossible. So what they've been talking about is moving it to December, January. But if you do it then, the World Cup in the middle of the winter, Christmas time, then you interfere with the European leagues. And that's huge expense, right, for the big European corporations running uh, European soccer. So, wow, what a lot of major sort of vectors of power and contradiction we're, we're seeing unfold here. Right, right. We're speaking with uh, political economist Patrick Bond. He wrote the Telesur article, FIFA Fraud, Africa's Corruption and Elite Silence about the Scandal Rocking Global Soccer. Seven top officials of soccer's international governing group, FIFA, including two vice presidents, were arrested last week. They were among 14 charged in a 47-count U.S. indictment, which alleges five corporate executives and nine FIFA officials in total were arrested, accepting uh, bribes and kickbacks estimated at more than $150 million over a 24-year period. Here in the U.S., one aspect of the story that's uh, getting to our elites is the Jackie Kucinich article in the Daily Beast last week that reported the Clinton Global Charity has received between $50,000 and $100,000 from soccer's governing body and has partnered with FIFA on several occasions, according to donor listings on the foundation's website. Involvement with the embattled body extends beyond the foundation to Bill Clinton himself. The former president was an honorary chairman of the bid committee put together to promote the United States as a possible host nation for the 2018 or 2022 World Cup when the U.S. lost the 2022 bid to Qatar. Clinton was rumored to be so upset he shattered a mirror. The Qatar 2022 Supreme Committee, partnering with the state of Qatar, used the Clinton Foundation's research and development for sustainable infrastructure at the 2022 FIFA World Cup to improve food security in Qatar, the Middle East, and other arid and water-stressed regions around the world, according to the Clinton Foundation website. The cost of the two-year project is not listed on the Clinton Foundation website, but the Qatar 2022 Committee gave the foundation between 250 and 500 thousand dollars in 2014 and the state of cutter gave between one million and five million dollars in previous unspecified years fifa which has never been a bastion of ethics was heavily criticized for awarding the 2018 and 2022 world cup to russia and cutter respectively in part because of their abysmal human rights records how does fifa how does this scandal and the the things that are happening in this scandal how does that reflect and even reveal the practices of our global elite? Well, I think you've really got some great little um, uh, examples of uh, particularly the, I mean, the Clinton Foundation. It's going to be quite interesting with the right wing going after Hillary to uh, see all the other little um, scummy deals that Bill Clinton um, has been up to. I, I really look forward to that because um, his role as a, not just a corporate tool, uh, certainly as president in the 90s, he introduced neoliberalism, such a sort of uh, 
a seamless way with uh, liberal political and social talk, um, along with militarism and neoliberalism. So it's good to see some of the mechanisms, let's say, inside that black box of what happened as they reproduce the power. But, you know, again, it's it, we're still talking like our $10 million bribe from our elites here in, in South Africa. It's pretty much, this is the peanuts, right? It's, it's the deeper structural uh, problems that I, I hope we can continue to talk about. Because if you take, for example, the big sponsors and how much money they make and what they can do to a country, I'm thinking of Coca-Cola, McDonald's, uh, Adidas, uh, Sony, Visa, um, Emirates. Now, they're really sweating, aren't they? Coca-Cola sent a very harsh note to to Blatter the day that the seven guys were arrested in the Zurich Hotel. And, you know, when they were here, Jack, it was it was appalling. They really took our sovereignty. They took, they commercialized everything. You know, even there was a great little song called Waving Flag. You remember hearing that? There's a beautiful singer from Somalia, Somalia called um, uh, Kenan. Do you remember yeah. the Toronto-based singer? And he sang this great progressive song about how awful it was to come from Somalia as a refugee facing the extreme uh, fundamentalist Islam, but also facing U.S. imperialism via the Ethiopian army. They invaded back in 2006. And, you know, he made a great tune out of this that we all love. But then Coca-Cola completely changed the lyrics <laughs> to make it their song. And uh, so we've seen this kind of commercialization just emblematized in that one example. And, and it took over this country in a way that shocked everyone who, as a proud South African, would say, no, we want our, our liberation from apartheid and discrimination and uh, the control of our society by awful white people. But here they come again, and it's a step ladder. And what he was able to do was impose a whole number of restrictions on our movement. I mean, I was even arrested. I, it's a tiny incident in the whole scheme of things. For handing out anti-xenophobia leaflets on our beach here in Durban, the xenophobia was rising, as it's continued to do. And I was accused of ambush marketing and, in fact, arrested two nights in a row. And the point was that, uh, like a corporation in the United States, I think you, you have this FEC versus, what is it, Citizens United versus FEC, is that the, the lawsuit that, that allowed corporations the human right right to express themselves yes. by, by buying? We have that hardwired into our Constitution. And Seth Blatter, therefore, was able to claim rights, his property rights, that could trump our rights of expression and cordon off huge areas of cities. Uh, for example, within a 10-kilometer zone of every stadium, a law saying no protesting. And this ambush marketing was amazing. So if you wanted to drink a good local beer, um, you couldn't because Anheuser-Busch, Budweiser, this awful to see beer, right? We call it, you know, kind of, what is it, the joke, making love in a canoe because I'm not going to say it on your radio show, but it's, it's, it's you know, close to water, right? <laughs> so this, this whole sense of, of being uh, invaded by corporations and the number one corporation that took our sovereignty and even told journalists, if you want accreditation, you will not throw FIFA into disrepute, right, if you were writing anything critical. Or we had films, documentaries, really good ones, that were banned from being shown on the local TV. And we, we had all kinds of, you know, uh, just that, that sense that FIFA had just taken over. And then the stadiums that we built, that's the big crime, because we're still uh, de dealing with 10 big white elephants, 10 stadiums. Most of them can't pay for themselves. Here in Durban, the third largest city, 3.5 million people, they built a stadium, a world-class, beautiful stadium, right next to another world-class stadium that the year before had been used for the semifinals of the prior kind of World Cup practice, the Confederations Cup. And, um, Chuck, this cost uh, $4 billion, uh, well, let's say all, all together probably $3.5 FIFA took out $3.2 uh, This is U.S. dollars. 
Uh, we spent another billion here in Durban on an airport we didn't need. We did all kinds of other restructurings of the city and got rid of people who were in, you know, sort of in the way and as, not as bad as in Rio and, and Sao Paulo. But, but, you know, we went through this process of bowing down to this dreadful machinery of this kind of Zurich Mafia FIFA. And we have this hangover. <laughs> it was a great party for a month, mid-June to mid-July of, of 2010. But already four years later, we've, we've, we've got this hangover that just doesn't go away. We're paying in, in Durban $10 million a year on maintenance uh, that, that uh, we can't make up because we can't fill these stadiums, it's, and this is not atypical. Um, these are the kinds of things that meant uh, what Sepp Blatter did by taking the two most unequal countries in the world, which are South Africa and Brazil, um, and in 2010, 2014, really milking us, you know, really using these emerging markets, the, the third one coming up, Russia, just to take massive profits out. Right. And this is one of the things that I've read in the media here, which is that the uh, only place that FIFA can actually host the World Cup or the International Olympic Committee can actually host the Olympics has to be in these governments that are very weak and very corrupt because no other government is going to allow you to get away with the things that you can get away with or you have been getting away with with FIFA in the World Cup. As you write in, uh, this is uh, mentioned about uh, FIFA's local organizer in chief, Danny Jordan in South Africa. In Jordan's defense, it could be argued that bribing Warner, this is the gentleman in Trinidad Dad and Tobago who was bribed in the process for uh, you know, allegedly for South Africa to get to the World Cup was a sensible investment for the national interest, along with <clears throat> trotting out the octogenarian Nelson Mandela to visit him in Trinidad, done clearly against doctor's orders. Others might then ask whether the illicit funding was really limited to just $10 million in the context of a World Cup conservatively estimated to have cost South Africa five billion dollars, but more like double that if all the unnecessary items plus a dramatic increase in the foreign debt are calculated. How much do South Africans now view the World Cup as a failure? And if we keep seeing Olympics losing money, every Olympics, I think it's the only Olympics that have actually made money in the last, uh, it, since 1932. I mean, you got, you have Berlin, it's weird how the Nazis could make money off of it. You have Montreal and Barcelona. Those are the only three Olympics. So to you, what explains the attraction of getting FIFA and the World Cup or getting the International Olympic Committee to bring the Olympics to your country if you know it's a bottom-line loser? Is it just because they're paying off officials? Well, that's an appropriate question because it's more than just this little sleazy backroom stuff that you can expect from the, um, I mean, look, Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah is infamous for getting getting bribes uh, through the IOC for the Winter Olympics a few years ago. So this isn't just sort of third worldist stuff, right? But I think what's critical is that we have gotten into a track of export orientation and branding and competitiveness between, especially between cities. And, and at some point, although countries compete with FIFA, what we're seeing next are cities. And I'll just tell you our story because it's so appropriate to your question, Chuck. Um, in the 2022, we'll be hosting here in Durban something called a Commonwealth Games. So the Commonwealth, for your listeners, is this whole British colonial um, empire um, uh, sort of residual, right? It's just the cultural and, and some of the political alliances that were kept in play. Queen Elizabeth sort of presides over it in a, in a sort of symbolic way, but it's, it's the old colonial tradition. But, you know, they do these Commonwealth Games as sort of warm-ups to the Olympics on the off two-year time, 
And, for example, the last one was Delhi. Now, here's a very poor city, New Delhi, the, the main city in India, uh, with huge problems, huge slums. But they spent $10 billion, $10 billion, no, In fact, I think it was even worse, more like 13 on um, preparing brand-new stadiums, all these facilities for, um, for their uh, 2012 um, Delhi uh, Commonwealth Games. Well, um, I think it was the 20, no, it was 2010 Commonwealth Games. And we had the China doing Beijing hosting the Olympics soon after. So you're right that it's kind of these, these countries that are emerging where there isn't all that much genuine democratic input into these decisions. But there's something deeper, which is this big uh, push to export and to brand and to make the cities uh, competitive in a world economy. They talk about world-class cities, and you have to have a world-class stadium and host a world-class event. Shockingly, we will win this 2022 Commonwealth game. The decision is September 2nd, even though we just were the catalyst city for xenophobia. So, in other words, uh, your listeners may know there's a problem of our working class uh, under a lot of pressure economically, housing shortages, uh, jobs where immigrants get much lower wages, and so they've responded with xenophobia. And as a result, um, the society's been extremely embarrassed by this out. Uh, upsurge in since about uh, early April of xenophobia starting here in Durban. But um, the team that from this Commonwealth Federation that, that chooses the cities was just over here, and they just chose Durban. And the interesting reason is that the competition pulled out, and that was Edmonton. Why Edmonton, a very rich city in Canada? It's because the oil price crashed. So Edmonton says, well, we can't afford all this nonsense. But Durban, an incredibly poor city with probably of our um, three and a half million about a million are in shacks. They don't have houses, right? They're living with little shanties and mud huts and that sort of thing. And it's what a waste of money. Eh? So we're going to put another billion dollars or more into that. Probably it'll it'll shoot up much higher to get this, this Commonwealth Games. And then they're already announcing that they're bidding for the 2024 Olympics. It's a drug, Jack. It's just this awful drug of being um, addicted to the world circuitries that our elites seem to have been now so badly addicted to that um, we can't get them off. We'll have to get rid of this government in order to get some Senate. We have been speaking with Patrick Bond live from Durban, South Africa. Patrick is a political economist based at the University of KwaZulu-Natal School of Development Studies in Durban, where he directs the Center for Civil Society. Patrick wrote the Telesur piece, FIFA fraud, Africa's corruption, and elite silence about the scandal rocking global soccer. He is the co-author with John S. Saul of the 2014 book, South Africa, the Present as History. And I love this part of your bio. Patrick was born in Belfast, North, Belfast, North Ireland, raised in Alabama. I'm sure that wasn't a culture shock. Educated in economics at Swarthmore finance at the University of Pennsylvania, and geography at Johns Hopkins University. Wow, that's quite a, quite a tour that you made there of your life, Patrick. Well, a tour of race and class and gender um, and ecological destruction. And um, so I could see, in a sense, from the inside. And I also worked in President Mandela's office in 1994 and 96 and did his first white paper. So I think I've seen enough of the way uh, ruling elites rule. And um, as your show puts it so eloquently, this is hell, right? This is not a sustainable way to, to run the world. And I think the most important thing, seeing the world and seeing global governance and seeing especially global sports governance and global financial governance and global climate governance, it's just not working. I mean, that's why, in a way, Sepp Blatter is such a personal emblem. I was kind of sorry to see him uh, make this announcement. He's bowing out because he really has served brilliantly as um, just a personification of an elite that takes so much and gives so little and squeezes uh, 
of people right down to the bottom, and yet has the support of other elites. Our South African government, you, you mentioned Danny Jordan, they were voting for him to have another term just uh, just uh, eight days ago. And Danny Jordan himself was just put in charge of the fifth largest city as the new mayor the day after all these prosecutions uh, and, and were announced and the arrests were made. So we're seeing an elite just degenerate so quickly. And uh, now that there's a little bit of the evidence from soccer, you can now see the, the, the way the bribes operate, the cash in the suitcases and all the rest of it. It's delightful, actually. <laughs> yeah, Sepp Blatter has been a real lightning rod. It's just too bad that that lightning rod hasn't been struck by lightning more often. Uh, Patrick, one last question for you, as we do with all of our guests. It's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. We are talking about how the International Olympic Committee and the Olympics so often uh, leads to massive de- debts by the uh, host city. You argue that uh, FIFA exacerbates poverty and conflict. How much of a role do you think international sport plays in the global system within which we live? If international sport changed, if we were able to reform FIFA and the IOC, could the world change too? Well, yes, we've obviously commercialized sport to the worst extremes with um, major figures getting the salaries and the the sort of attention that is absolutely... um, uh, consonant with the corporatization of everything, with consumer culture. So if we want the globalization of people, and we're not supportive of the globalization of capital, sport uh, in its degenerate form, like Sepp Blatter and some of the top sports stars have come to represent, is one good way to educate people and to contest. So I think I'll end with the idea that this is not a one-way circuitry of money, power, corruption from above. Um, operating to to squeeze out um, profits from uh, below and leave everyone with a sort of false consciousness, the way say Noam Chomsky talks about about soccer is just or organized sports as a as a training ground for for awful nationalism. That's there, sure, but there's resistance, and I think what we'll see is is people looking for more um, uh, connections between, especially the BRICS. I have a new book coming from a Chicago publisher, Haymarket. Uh, co-edited with a Brazilian, Ana Garcia. It's called BRICS, an anti-capitalist critique. It'll be ready in a couple of months. Haymarket Press, you can find uh, on their website the um, the ordering. And it really does go through. We have a special section dedicated to what this sort of sports culture is doing, especially to Rio de Janeiro. But I think what I'd like to say in, in conclusion is the contradictions are so extreme in these um, uh, these sports events, and yet they um, suck people in, and we think we're having a good time. But it's that long, durable critique that political economy gives us, and um, particularly with feminist, anti-racist, anti-imperialist, and ecological critiques that uh, we all need to make of, of FIFA and all the other big organized sports uh, spectaculars that I think will be part of us coming to a new approach to the world um, in the future. Uh, that is a progressive approach that celebrates the um, exchange of, of sporting teams uh, from the grassroots level, the grace and the beauty of these games like soccer. Um, but uh, when we see it being commercialized, we'll remember Seb Blatter with his uh, his uh, FIFA being um, an exemplar of, of corruption and malevolence. Well, Patrick, when that book comes out, uh, we'll definitely bug you and get you back on the show. Really great speaking with you again. Good to hear your voice again. It's been a few years. And uh, enjoy the rest of your day in South Africa. Thank you so much. Good to be with you, John. Take care. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. And we're back in uh, the present seven years later. Time travel. Woo! How does that work? 
<sighs> so now let's uh, take a look see at uh how you the listening audience um is responding to uh this week's question from hell so far um all right so we have one reply to uh the question from hell a what should people be thanking you for this year brandon s writing not getting in the way um then we have a couple more to um the other question from hell what are you thankful for this year which yeah that's a little more basic but you know whatever occasionally it's okay to be basic um christy writes the impending nuclear apocalypse chet ev writes vladimir putin's good health Laddie O writes, Grateful This Is Hell still gives me migraine. You're welcome, Laddie. Adam A writes, I'm grateful that we got the name off every last one of those jagoffs in Chicago City Hall who didn't even show up to discuss a vote to help Chicago's homeless. And they are. And uh, there's the entire list of those people. I'm not going to read them out now because, I mean, technically we have the time, but go to our Facebook page. This is Hell on Facebook, and uh, take a look what uh, Adam A. has dug up there. Uh, the names of all the older men. Um, Fabio L. writes, he is grateful for Chuck's proctologist. And uh, lastly, Sharon O. writes, thankful I'm not working at Crown Books. I don't know what that means. And I'm alone here, so I can't be like, hey, uh, anybody else? Anybody else? Can anybody tell me what that means? So, uh, yeah, I don't know what that means. But those are uh, the official replies. Official replies. Jesus. If we have any official replies. Replies to this week's question from hell. And uh, that's it for this Monday's show. Uh, send your thoughts, prayers, and whatever else you have uh, to our beloved host, Chuck Mertz. Um, Chuck at thisishell.com, where you can tweet at us as long as twitter's still there jesus christ oh, oh twitter that, that that will never just i don't know that just adds to making me sad and feeling surreal i mean it also also kind of shows you that i just spend entirely too much time on twitter but um that's uh that's just how that goes um yeah and tomorrow Lindsay, Lindsay will be here to uh, take care of y'all um, she will play an interview with uh, Tea Rio Francos on eco socialism. Um, and then on uh, Wednesday, Dan will be here um, playing an interview with uh, Monique Morris talking about how racism and sexism collide to criminalize black girls. Ah, playing the hits feel good uh the usual feel good things corruption and eco-socialism and climate collapse and uh sexism and, ra and racism there will not be a moment of truth this week um i'm supposed to tell you all from jeffrey um jeffrey is not going to post uh not going to hold another moment of truth before we don't have at least 10 more patreon followers no i'm, I'm kidding um that's that's not what he said um that's we're, we're just trying to um 
you know, just, just trying to make a living here. Um, and failing at that for the most part. Um, because this is hell. And, uh, yeah. Sebastian, producer, this is hell. Monday, November 21. And, uh, yeah, and that's it. Um, I'll, you will hear my voice again, possibly on Thursday, if you have, no, possibly on Friday, Friday, possibly on Friday, if you have subscribed to Patreon. If not, then, come on, subscribe, subscribe to Patreon, do it, just, just do it, do it. Um, yeah, and if not on Friday, then you will, in all likelihood, hear me, uh, hear my voice again, um, next, uh, next Monday. Yeah, next Monday. Um, when Chuck is back and we have a new interview. All new interview. Uh, anyway, still live from still Plague Country. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh, my demon talks to me a profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell raid. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>